Hey, I'm Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm coming to you today from a beautiful wildflower, prairie, and uh, marsh complex. It's a preserve just west of Chicago, Illinois. I came up here to speak at a series of churches. Uh, CMI gives me a big fat itinerary. I have eight events in seven days in three different states. Uh, but happily, I was put up at Dayspring Seminary. This is run by Quinton Road Baptist Church. I spoke there on Wednesday night. Uh, Jim Scudder and I have I've known each other for a long time. This is my third time at his church. I've actually appeared on his In Grace television show several times, which is a tremendous honor. But I'm working with several different creationist organizations, um, several different churches. If you're up in this area, I've been to Wisconsin twice. I've been south of Chicago once. I've been to um, eastern Iowa once. If you're anywhere in that area, I can hook you up to one of the creation uh, groups up here. There'll be some links in the show notes if you're interested. But I was planning on doing a different talk than the one I'm going to give. I was working on this idea called Darwin's abominable mystery. Now that's his phrase. He wrote that the origin of flowering plants suddenly in the fossil record is to him an abominable mystery. So I was walking around, I'm seeing all these beautiful wildflowers, some of them for the first time ever, some of them for the first time ever in the wild, and I'm identifying them. I'm looking at the genetics of the, the different uh, flower families, and I was going to talk about this, the problem for evolution of the sudden rise of the flowering plants. But a couple days ago, I watched a video, a long video, two hours long. It was, it was a trial to get through it. It was uh, produced by a person I'm well aware of. Her name is Erica. She's a primatologist. She's actually, um, she and Dan of Creation Myths fame uh, did a video against me several years ago called Robert Carter's Wrong About Everything, which I responded to on creation.com, an article, Robert Carter's Wrong About Everything, question mark. There'll be a link in the show notes for that if you like. And I pointed out a lot of the errors that they made and they're trying to critique uh, some of the things that I've said. But this case, Erica, the primatologist, has turned her sights on Dr. Jeffrey Tompkins of the Institute for Creation Research. Now, Jeff and I have known each other for a long time. I first met him when he was at Clemson. He was in their genomics department. He was building genomes for a living. Uh, since then, he's gone to the Institute for Creation Research. And full disclosure, he and I are both on the board of directors of the Creation Research Society. We have a small community of creationist geneticists, and the secular community, a small group of them, has taken it upon themselves to be our criticizers. And this long video, she's, she's slamming Jeff up and down for supposed mistakes that he's made. Now, he is a gentle and quiet and unassuming person. I found him to be very humble, and he's not a bulldog, so he hasn't come back swinging, but he has put his foot down and said, no, I'm, I'm not wrong. And um, it did take him a while uh, to say that in a couple places, and that drives them to distraction. Why'd you take so many years to correct this? Well, he's not on their timetable. He can do it whenever he wants. But he did take a while in a couple of cases uh, to um, publish some of his corrections. Now, one thing that happened, though, was one of his chimpanzee human similarity estimates that he did. Oh, by the way, he's a plant geneticist, and one of the things that Erica criticizes, he's not a human or ape geneticist, so he doesn't know what he's doing. Uh, no, he's a geneticist. He has the same toolkit. He builds genomes, and once you have the tools, you can apply them to any species you like. Within reason, you do have to learn a few things about the quirks of human and ape genetics, but that's not really that hard. Now, on the other hand, she's trying to analyze his work in genetics, and she's making some subtle mistakes of her own, which I'm not going to go into, but it's clear that she's not a geneticist. So fine, we have these two people, they're arguing, and he's coming up with estimates of human chimpanzee genomes in the 80% range. Most evolutionary estimates are up in the 98, 99% range. In the 80s, 80s, 84%, 87%, several different estimates depending on what he's doing. Well, he did get one lowball estimate, and he published that. 
but that lowball estimate came because there was a mistake, an error, a bug in the computer program that he was using. It wasn't his fault, it was in the computer program. But this is a program that geneticists across the world use. In fact, all geneticists use a program called BLAST. BLAST is something we all use. There's different iterations of it, different versions for doing slightly different things. And this one that he was using had an error and it caused his percent similarity to be very low. And they pointed it out. In fact, one skeptic associated with Erica, a computer programmer, he wrote the Answers Research Journal asking that his paper be published. The problem is you can't publish the Answers Research Journal unless you subscribe to their statement of belief, which is, are you young earth creationists? Then you can publish here. And he obviously doesn't. And there's all these emails back and forth of pairing, and, and it's just very awkward and very long and very sorted, but I'm sorry, you just couldn't publish there. And probably um, your paper didn't meet the requirements of publication anyway. I don't know. I'm, I haven't read the paper. I just know that it was, um, it was rejected. So. We know that there was an error in that program. The estimates are not in the 70s. His, most of his estimates are in the 80s. Now, is that wrong? Well, Erica um, claims that uh, these estimates are wrong for several reasons. One is there's a difference when you run a search using BLAST. Are you going to allow for gaps or not allow for gaps? And apparently he's using one of the settings, but if you use the other settings, you get a much different reading, you get a much higher similarity if you allow gaps in your search sequence. But he's dug in his heels and said, no, this is, this is appropriate. Now, I don't want to spend more time on that because to me it doesn't matter. In the design criterion, God could have made humans and chimpanzees as similar or dissimilar as he pleased. We literally, now I don't believe this, but we could have had a single letter differences between our two species. One letter that prevents hybridization between humans and chimps. Or he could have made us as different as chimpanzees are from jellyfish. Anything in there is acceptable in the creation model. Now, I did write a paper in Journal of Creation about how God created hierarchically. And that hierarchical creation means that there are pairs of species that are more similar than they are to other things. And that's true across the entire living world. Now, why did God make humans similar to chimpanzees? I don't know. I'm not in the mind of God. I can't know that. That's not something that we can predict. Ah, but speaking of predictions, Nobody could predict how similar humans and chimpanzees were before the numbers came in. Back in the 1940s, they assumed that because they thought that proteins were carrying the information, that humans and chimpanzees must have very different proteins because we're different species. And we started finding out that we had proteins in common. It was actually a shock. Then the 1970s. The first paper to estimate the genetic similarities in humans and chimpanzees was Wilson and King 1975, and they estimated 99% similar. But they're using something called reassociation kinetics. What you do in, in this method is you take DNA of two different species and you mix them together. You warm the solution up while shining a light through it, and you're measuring light transmission. When it gets a little bit when it gets to the, what's called the melting temperature, the DNA strands that are the two strands of each species DNA separate. And then the solution becomes much more clear. And then if you cool it off, any self-similar DNA will stick together. But because you have two different species mixed together, any, self, any similar sequence from the two different species will stick together. And you can get a percent similarity based on how at what temperature they come back together again. Except it takes a lot of very complex mathematics to do this. There is a, a very 
important art to this science. It's non-trivial to do these estimates. And one reason is that the first thing that comes together in a DNA solution is the highly repetitive DNA. The things that repeat many, 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 many times in the genome, they stick together very quickly. They don't tend to have many genes. After that, the sections of DNA that have some genes and some repeats will stick together. And after that, the sections of DNA that have single copy genes. Because you're a single copy gene in a solution, it might take a while to find the corresponding gene so that the hydrogen bonds can line up and the two things can stick together. And so you get plateaus in the cooling curve. The first thing you see is the, is the repetitive sequences and then the medium stuff and then finally the, the single copy genes. And back then they had some primitive methods of cutting out all of the first and second session, sec, sets of DNA. So they're only looking at apples to apples, which is a fair comparison as long as everyone acknowledges that. But they found that in that fraction of DNA, not the other fraction, humans and chimpanzees are estimated to be 99% identical. Now enter some bird scientists. Remember, you're not allowed to work outside your field according to Erica, but imagine, here come these two bird scientists, Sibley and Alquist. They are famous. I have their book, The Phylogeny and Classification of Birds, on my bookshelf at my office back at CMI. Famous book, famous work, and they're doing reassociation kinetics amongst birds. Well, they were experts in it, so they did the same thing with humans and chimpanzees. And they estimated, after all the complex math, after cutting out the highly similar sequences, I think it was 98% similar. It might have been 98.5, but 98, let's just say that, percent similar. Okay, that's the running number. That is right on the edge of what the evolutionary community can tolerate. Now, in one sense, it doesn't really matter to evolution how similar we are. Just the similarity is the similarity. But in another sense, there is a limit because it takes time for mutations to propagate in a population. I did a whole episode called The Waiting Time Problem on that. And if we're less than 99% similar, they might not have enough time, even if we're millions of years, to drive the differences between humans and chimpanzees. In fact, I don't think they can do it at all, but using a lot of evolutionary assumptions, they might be able to get to 99%, maybe, maybe 98%, but almost certainly nothing less than that. Now, in recent years, um, when I was in college, the human chimp split time was three million years. Later on, after the Human Genome Project came out, other things, other estimates, they started estimating maybe 6 million years. I've heard Richard Dawkins many times say 6.5 million. Some people say 7. There's some people, a couple years ago, they wanted to push the difference to 17 million, maybe 11 million years in the past. Whoa. Now, the paleontologists will not allow that because that would mean if we split from chimpanzees that long ago, that would put apes in the time of the dinosaurs, which is not allowed. So they have a limit. There's a mathematical minimum limit, and there's a paleontological upper limit. So they can't have any number. And the number is telling us that it's very difficult to squeeze this much difference in the amount of time even that they have. Now, it was in the 2010s that Tompkins starts doing his work on human and chimp similarities after the first chimpanzee genome was sequenced in 2005. But um, he didn't trust it, and rightly so, because they didn't do it correctly. Instead of sequencing it from scratch, what they did is they just sequenced pieces of it and hung it on the human genome to assemble the chimpanzee genome. They used the human genome as a scaffold. They assumed common ancestry without testing it. And in so doing, they, um, the human genome, the initial human genome had uh, 
300 big gaps where they couldn't sequence through the high repetitive centromeres, telomeres, and a couple of spots in the chromosomes. So they put the letter N there. They put 1,000 Ns, 5,000 Ns, 10,000 Ns in these big gaps to say this is a section we have not yet covered. Now the telomere to telomere project um, is working full steam. They've, they've accomplished full sequencing of several chromosomes now, so that's being completed. But for a long time, we didn't have the full thing. When they did the chimpanzee genome, though, they added 300,000 gaps, 1N, 10Ns, 100N, 1,000Ns, because there's tons of places where the human and chimpanzee genomes don't align. Now, since then, they've redone it from scratch eventually, but I think the, that first wave of, um, of graduate students who was coming through in about 2005, I think their PIs told them, don't do anything with the chimpanzee genome. It's garbage. Wait five or 10 years, we'll replace it, we'll have plausible deniability, but essentially no papers were written on the chimpanzee genome for several years because they had nothing to work with. But now we have better genomes, and to be fair, the original genome construction mostly came through. They did have to rearrange a few things, and there are some mistakes that they made, but it mostly came through. So it wasn't a good genome, but it wasn't as bad as it could have been. But they shouldn't have done it that way anyway because they actually didn't know. In fact, they got lucky. But now we have a better genome. But back then, one of the things that Tompkins was doing, he wasn't taking the chimpanzee genome because he knew that was created by taking a lot of chimpanzee sequences and lining them up and taking an average. So instead, he went to the, the sequence read database and he took the sequences, he chopped them up into various length pieces, and he threw them at the human genome to see what percent would stick. And then he took pieces of the human genome, he threw it at the chimpanzee and see what percentage would stick. And he found out that only maybe, you know, I'm going to say 85% on average, because he has several estimates in that range. Just to say 85% of them stuck. Well, that told him that the human chimpanzee genomes are 85% similar. Around the same time, Richard Buggs, who I believe is an evolutionist, he's a scientist in England, he came out with a number also, I think it was 85.5%. Not doing apples to apples comparison, he's comparing everything. If you look at all the DNA, it's about 85.5%. That was a giant shot in the arm for the creationist community, and Tompkins' work looked like it was validated, and so we have this 85.5%. Except that in the year 2020, he produced a revised estimate of 96.6%. That's a big difference. And as soon as I heard that, I knew there must have been a change in the methodology because the human chimpanzee genomes didn't change that much. There must have been a change in the methodology. So, well, I happen to know the first author of that paper, Josiah Seaman. Uh, his, he was working on his, his doctorate at that time. He's since got his PhD. He's working in Richard Bugg's lab. Uh, and that was their paper, Seaman and, and Bugg's 2020 on the human chimpanzee similarity. So I called Josiah up. I said, hey, would you please help work me through your paper and explain what you did? He said, sure. And so we spent an hour or so going through all the parts. And as soon as he started talking, I knew exactly what had happened. They changed the methodology. He said, we wanted an apples to apples comparison. Bing, okay. He said, the first thing they did was they chopped out the centromeres, the highly repetitive centromeres that are different between humans and chimpanzees and even different from one uh, chromosome to another in the human genome. They chopped those out. He says he thinks he remembered chopping off the, the telomeres also at the end of the chromosomes. Then they looked at all the copy number variations because humans and chimpanzees do have different numbers of the same genes. So if the human has five copies and chimpanzee has two copies, they deleted three of the human copies. They found the two copies in human chimps that were most similar and deleted the other three. Interesting. 
and then they deleted all the indels. All the spaces that you have to put in respectively in the human and chimpanzee genomes to align their sequences. One letter, ten letter, hundred thousand, doesn't matter. They deleted all of those sections and brought everything together. Now they have pieces of human and chimpanzee that we do share in common, that do align, and that don't have any gaps. And they got 96.6% similar. And that is fair. Apples to apples, 96.6. But understand this, hey, if you're a skeptic, if you're an evolutionist, if, you're, if you believe in evolution, if you're a Christian who believes in evolution, or an evolutionist does believe in Christianity, or if you're a creationist, listen carefully. If 96.6 is the best modern estimate of our similarity, the true similarity is necessarily less than that. Because you have to include all of the indels, you have to include the copy number variations, the centromeres, the telomeres, and other things. There's a huge number of differences between us. I mean, there's 30 million single letter differences between humans and chimpanzees. There's not enough time in evolutionary history, even if given billions of years, to fix that number of differences according to standard evolutionary population genetics. That's the waiting time problem. There are hundreds of thousands of of in insertions and deletions that must have occurred in some individual in a distant past in either human or chimpanzee and that thing had to spread out to all the individuals in that species eventually. There are tens of thousands of chromosomal rearrangements that had to occur. I'm, I'm going to say tens of thousands. I'm not sure what the number is anymore, but it's many different chromosomal rearrangements that have to happen in a single individual, then spread out to the entire population. There are many millions of differences between us, and you only, even in your evolutionary model, only have a few million years to accumulate them. The math is not on your side. So, in the end, on one hand, I don't care how different we are. On the other hand, I'm a nerd, I want to know. It's an interesting question, I want to know. On the other, other hand, um, as long as it's less than is required by evolutionary theory, I also don't care how similar they are. It can be 98%, I'm happy with that. It's on the edge, I'd be happier with 95%. 90% would be killer. If it's in the 80s, that'd be even better. Now, if you want a discussion on Tompkins and the mistakes he may or may not have made, um, go listen to her long, two hour long video, there'll be a link below, or read some of Jeff's articles where he explains why he does not believe he made a mistake. I'm just going to leave that hanging out there because honestly, the answer doesn't matter. In the Bible, humans are created with no relationship to any other species. God made Adam out of dust of the ground. That means we have no common ancestry with any other species. In the Bible also, humans are different than all animals. We are the only species that can relate to God. Within us is the breath of the spirit of life. We can think of God, we can ponder God, we can meet God one day. Uh, chimpanzees aren't morally accountable for anything. They don't have that sort of a conscience that we do. We are on this earth and we're only responsible to God for our actions. Now, if you're really struggling with this, how can evolution not be true? I remember struggling with it. I remember the first time I heard someone say evolution wasn't true. I thought that person was insane. I thought he was nuts. He had three heads and this guy was crazy. What? The earth isn't millions of years old and evolution isn't true? Are you kidding me? Yeah, but that was 30 years ago, a little more than 30 years ago. I've done a lot of thinking since then, and I've come full circle. Started off as a Christian, kind of, didn't know anything, 
rapidly losing my, my faith. I come into this evolution might not be true idea and God studies me into Christianity. I really don't think I was a Christian before that. I kind of went to church, but I really didn't believe anything. And evolution for me, deep time, evolution, all those sorts of things was a huge challenge. I did not know that throughout the course of my life that I would start developing answers to those challenges. The answers are there, but you have to dig in. You have to be very careful with your information sources. I'm sorry, but um, Gutsep Gibbon has not done a good enough analysis on the work of Jeffrey Tompkins or me or other creation scientists on this issue. The point is, the differences are greater than 96.6%. Therefore, there's not enough time in evolutionary history to account for them. There, I laid my cards on the table. I hope you're blessed by that. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you learned something. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Biblical Genetics, there'll be some links in the show notes below.